The Healing the City podcast is a ministry of the Village Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you enjoy the Healing the City podcast and wish to support it financially, you can go to villagersonline.com, click the We Give tab, and follow the instructions. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Good. Welcome to Healing the City Podcast, and in particular, our brand new uh, segment uh, starting out called The Book of Saul, but it will change its name as it proceeds. And uh, this is mostly a, a brainchild of Ron Brown, who you've heard his story the last couple podcasts. I mean, I think there was an authenticity podcast and that was last. But anyway, so we're gonna turn, I'm going to turn this over to Ron. My name is Eric, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Village. Ron Brown is... Uh, goes to the village he's been going for a while and he's gonna start our little podcast off so i'll turn it over to you all right and actually it works out pretty well that the last podcast was on authenticity because for what i'm gonna do in this podcast is just trying to establish trust um among non-believers in me so showing that i'm willing to be authentic and honest um so the purpose of this people well let me just backtrack so i spent close to 20 years being um an, an agnostic atheist uh, that only changed like three months ago um and after i converted like my life got a lot better and even before i converted i was doing better just coming to this church there and you know there have been so many benefits uh to it and so the purpose of this podcast for me is to help non-believers see that you know there is a lot of wisdom and value um to be gained by participating in a church and to read the religious texts, even if you don't change your beliefs one inch. Um, in fact, for my first six months coming to this church, I came as, a, as an atheist. Uh, so I'm not trying to convert anyone. I'm just trying to make you realize that, you know, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, so the, yeah, so that's the purpose of this is to show non-believers what they're missing. Um, the purpose of this first episode is, is essentially to, the biggest thing is to establish trust. I want atheists uh, to know that I understand them and that I'm going to present their position with all the strength that it has. I'm not going to straw man them. I'm going to steel man them. Um, and I also want to help Christians better understand where some of the non-believers are coming from, their reasons. So I'm going to start off by just defining uh, what agnostic atheism is. That was the position I held, and it, it, my guess is it's probably the most common among non-believers, um, maybe second to that or agnosticism. Um, so a lot of people think that agnostic and atheist is like, how do you combine those two? Agnostic means I don't know, uh, and people often think that atheist means I believe or I know there is no God. Now, what an agnostic atheist is, it can be effectively described as being agnostic in theory, but atheist in practice. So, and a, a simple agnostic will simply say, hmm, yeah, maybe there's a God, dunno. Um, an agnostic atheist will go a little further. They'll say, yep, there could be a God, I have no idea, but to this point in my life, I have not come across convincing reasons to believe there is one, and even if there is one, how do I know it's your God? Why should I organize my life around your religious text? Um, so that's where the atheist in practice comes. They don't know if there's no God, but they see no need to act in accordance with the idea that there is one and that not just that, that it's this specific one. Um, so like a good comparison would be if one New Zealander were to say to another, I think tomorrow this island is going to crumble and collapse into the ocean. 
The other New Zealander might say, well, maybe. Like, I can't write that possibility off, but unless you give me some good reason to think it's going to happen, I'm not going to modify my day <laughs> in accordance with that mere possibility. So that's your agnostic atheist. And, you know, some people will sometimes say that, you know, many a- atheists are arrogant. And, you know, of course, there are some arrogant atheists. They're arrogant, everyone. Um, but the, the position of agnostic atheism itself is, is actually, it's a very humble position. And I think one of its greatest strengths is that it requires no leap of faith whatsoever. Um, and whereas I fully admit that my new belief system absolutely does. Um, and you know, I've always, I, as a belief, as a non-believer, and even now as a believer, I would still say that there is no intellectual position I have ever come across that is stronger than agnostic atheism. And I stand by that. Um, so that's agnostic atheism for you. Now I'm going to go into some common theistic arguments, um, you know, arguments for the belief of God, and also go into showing how atheists will often respond to that. So there's a lot of arguments that um, Christians and other uh, believers in God will make that are really compelling, and what makes them what, often what part of it what makes it part of what makes it them compelling is that they're quick to say, and they really are intuitively, you know, compelling. Um, whereas the atheist responses often take a lot more time to flesh out. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of like if you're having an argument, you're at a disadvantage if your opponent can state their position in a compelling way in three seconds and it takes you 10 minutes to rebut it. Um, but it, and it goes both ways. So for example, if a Christian wants to explain the compellingness of the prophecies in the Old Testament and how many of them were shown to be borne out in, in later texts, well, that, you know, they're not going to be able to get through that in, in, in a minute. It's going to take them a while, which is probably why they don't mention them in debates very often because the debate format would never allow for it. Um, but anyhow, so I'm going to go into a few different sections of arguments. Uh, one set is the argument from arguments from design. So in terms of the biological realm, that basically boils down to saying something like, um, the bumblebee is so unbelievably complex and intricate and, 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 and if it were even slightly less perfect, it wouldn't work. How could that have emerged without an author? Um, so, and then next is the fine-tuning argument, the fine-tuning of the universe argument. This one's really compelling. It's the idea that if, if, if our part of the universe, like, you know, the planet Earth, if it was a little warmer or a little cooler, or if gravity was a little stronger or a little weaker here, or, and here's a big one, if ice didn't float, none of us would be here, up to and including amoeba. Um, so, like, how could this unbelievably unlikely outcome happen? Um, and then there's also the, uh, the question of how could something come from nothing? So I'm going to go over how uh, an atheist could respond to these things. Um, so for, in terms of the organized, for biology, we have a very compelling theory, the theory of evolution by natural selection, which is as or probably more well substantiated than any other theory in the history of science that explains how species you know, come to develop their complexity and their functionality. Um, we also have compelling theories as to the, the the development of the first reproducing cells. So naturalistic explanations that do not require a, an external supernatural intervener. Um, in terms of the... Um, and then also, oh, I almost forgot to say, so... And if you say, if a Christian or a, another religious believer were to say, God created the bumblebee, God did it, 
that doesn't make your problem any smaller. It actually makes it, it just pushes it back one step and makes it bigger. Because now instead of having to explain how the bumblebee um, came to be, you have to explain how something even more incredible than the bumblebee was able to design the bumblebee and make it, and not just the bumblebee, but also the amoeba, the palm tree, the chicken, the human, and the dog. That, so it's, it, you've pushed the problem back a step, and you've made it a much more challenging question. So that's for the biological argument from design. Then there's the fine-tuning argument, which to which the an atheist could respond that the universe is a vast, vast place that's been around for a long, long time. And so even highly unlikely events can become conceivably possible if it's given enough opportunities to possibly happen. Um, an example I could give is I work as an occupational therapist in home health, and one of the things that I focus on a lot is helping people reduce their risk of falling at home. And oftentimes, people I work with, they don't think they're at risk, even though statistically speaking, they are. And the thing is, is that when they say, I think I'm fine, I will often say to them, you know what, in a way, I completely agree with you. I think that you're probably somewhere in the ballpark of 99.9% .9 fine. But that means that one time in a thousand, something goes wrong. And if you get up just 30 times a day, which is a mere fraction of how many times you probably will get up today you're falling every 33, 34 days. Um, so likewise, you have a universe that is massive and has been around for a long time. Even highly improbable events have a, have a reasonable probability of happening at some point. And then another thing is you could argue that it's totally conceivable that most of the universe does not have life in it. Um, not now, not before, and you know, not ever. And so if that be the case, then we could say that, look, a highly improbable event happens rarely which is exactly what you'd expect with a highly improbable event um and and then you could also go into multiverse theory and be like maybe there's more than one universe so so th so those are some ways that atheists would respond to that um now on the issue of how something could come from nothing um an atheist could respond that isn't that exactly what the god theory is why is it um intellectually responsible to say that God created all, and then when asked who created God, the religious person says, God just is, has always been, is beyond time. Like, if we, how is that a better position than the universe is beyond time, or the precursors to our current universe, the, the, you know, whatever there was that allowed for the Big Bang to happen, whatever configurations that allowed for that, who's to say they are not beyond time? Um, both of these are statements of faith, and I don't think anyone could claim to know the answer. Or they could claim it, I just don't think it would be a responsible claim. Um... And then, and then once again, I'd say, you know, maybe there is, you may, they might say, maybe there is a God, but how do we know it's your God? So that's one section of, of common arguments. Another is the arguments from morality. In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, he went right to that to, at the very beginning because he knew it was big. Um, so the arguments that a Christian or other religious person might make is that how can there be an objective morality without an objective moral fabric of the universe, and how can there be that without an author to it? Because morality is a non-physical thing. So how could we expect it to just come from the physical? Um, and why do all of us essentially tend to have a very keen moral sense, feeling deeply that stealing, lying, and hurting others without provocation is wrong? You know, where did this common set of beliefs come from and, you know, that we almost all of us share? So to these, atheists could respond, firstly, maybe there is no objective morality. 
Um, now, one argument that was made by uh, Sam Harris, an atheist hero of mine, that, and, I, and I disagree with him on this, is he says, yes, there's clearly an objective morality because there are certainly things that we can do that we know will improve the flourishing of humans um, better than others and cause less suffering. So, for example, if a, if a person with a disability is walking across the street, it would be better for them and, in a way, for, for the broader the community around them if you helped them across the street rather than if you deliberately pushed them over. Um, but the problem, so, so that that's non-disagreeable. Cle clearly, there are certain things that are better for people than others. But the problem comes in as to why do we objectively, why are we objectively obligated to, to serve those interests? It's like there are certain things that I could do that would de definitely make me a better basketball player. I could practice, get coaching for someone who's been playing for a while, and I definitely get better at it. But nobody is going to not let me date their daughter if I don't do that. Um, there, th so it, the difference isn't that you can make a difference dependably. It's that why am I obligated to? So an atheist could say all those things. Um, in terms of, um, you know, the development, the evolution of morality, um, you get a lot from biology and, and comparative psychology here. Comparative psychology means the comparison of the psychologies of different species. Um, so people often think of natural selection, uh, evolution by natural selection as uh, survival of the fittest, and, and they implicitly think that means survival of the fittest individual. But that's only part of it. Group selection's a big thing too. Um, if a group of, say, if a gaggle of geese or a, you know, a flock of seagulls or a tribe of humans if 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 they if the parents don't do a good job raising the kids that genetic line is going to end real quick because those kids are not going to thrive and have their own kids and if the tribe members can't trust each other to be cooperative and non-deceitful and non-betraying how are they going to come together to defend themselves against the bear or to hunt the woolly mammoth because no one of them could do that by themselves so clearly there would be a selective pressure for the development of uh of what we call morality um, and research has shown this in many different types of animal species. Uh, so one example I could cite is a study done on a certain type of primate, can't remember, let's just say it's orangutans. Um, what they did was they had five or six orangutan mothers just sitting around, hanging out, and then they played a, a pre-recorded tape of one of their babies crying. And what happened next was that all the mothers who were not the mother of this baby looked at the mother. So what seems to be happening here was they were keeping track of social relations and social obligations, which is clearly a precursor to moral to, to morality. So um, now there's then of course there's the big question of how does the physical the non-physical come from the physical? That's a big answer. I'm happy to talk about it if Eric wants to bring it up, but I don't want to go on too long here. And so, uh, Eric, yeah, what do you think? Uh, that's really good. Um, I think you are certainly showing that you know the arguments and and lived in this space for quite a while um but let's work backwards just one thing you said that i thought was interesting um that i think you might need to flesh out a little bit for me personally is i would disagree with you that agnostic atheism or ag if that's what you were calling it is not a faith-based i knew that was going to come up yes uh, because it is um, it, it, it requires some element of faith because all life is built around faith, right? Um, you trusted me that the seat you're sitting in is not going to, right? Do, do you have some faith that you're not going to fall in? Uh, right? Quite a bit. We act on faith yeah. all the time. And so uh, for an atheist, he has a certain faith in the I don't know, in the 
I don't need to know in the I can't know right the, uh, he has faith in those assertions um, I would argue that probably evidence is the issue right hmm. a Christian most Christians or most religious people because it's kind of how you have a um, a different maybe requirement for evidence right so I would respond back saying that like okay so if we want to take a, the position of strong atheism that is the belief that there or the or the claim to knowledge that there absolutely is no god absolutely that's a faith claim no question about it which is why I never held it um right. but with agnostic atheism um see the reason that I argue that it does not require even a gram of faith I just showed how Canadian I am by using that a metric gram, system. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I still I still don't know ounces. Anyhow, um, okay. so the thing is, is that ultimately, as I said, the agnostic atheist does not know, and if they do not know and do not claim to, claim to know, they are not making a claim, and all they're making a claim to is I don't know, which is a claim. It's a claim, but it's like a claim of ignorance. They're, they're basically saying, "Hey, I'm ignorant. I really don't know." Right. Um, and, so, and then, in, yeah. So, so here would be my argument then next. And I, I'm just, for me, I agree with everything you said. In fact, I think when you went down through the arguments, I'm like, yeah, this is sort of where the dialogue goes. I mean, I think the moral argument is the weakest argument for the atheist in response, but they're all very good and solid, you know, arguments back and forth here. I just think all things, even the person says, I don't know, it's the, especially if he's going to choose an action. Mm-hmm. To, not yeah. to try to know, then that's a faith claim. I, I don't need to know, so I'm not gonna know. So yeah, like so, trusting in science, for example, that that involves faith. It, yes. it, 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 yeah, so fair enough. But simply saying I don't know that doesn't require faith because it's like you're actually not taking a position. Like you, you know, you're just saying I don't know. Right. It's like is it gonna is it, like, like okay? I'm not gonna use Arizona as an example. Like if you ask, is it gonna rain tomorrow? The answer is almost definitely no. But but if you're in a normal place, it's like right, if someone asks right. you and you haven't checked the weather network, all you can say is I don't know. Right. Yeah. Right. And and I agree with that. I in in the moment in that present mm-hmm. time, but it also has implications of like okay, but what are you gonna do about that? Right. And, and that indicates yeah. faith. Yep, absolutely. One example I used to give is, let's say, like, imagine you're running your finger across a table, a desk. And, um, you know, it's like the whole time you've been running it across the desk, nothing different happens. And so you could assume that that's going to continue happening forever. But what happens when you get to the edge of the table and you fall off? So it's like by that logic, it's like just because it seems that gravity is always applied for all we know in 10 seconds the rules of gravities will will change right right and can't disqualify that possibility but it's like we kind of have to go on living right. and so like it, yeah it is an act of faith yeah. uh, to live to, to live in accordance with the idea that <laughs> right. you know gravity's going to keep holding and you know your mother really does love you and all that kind of stuff right right i was thinking about your new zealander example and i think my the classic example of i think what the way christians operate um, and I can see it would be maybe hard for people who aren't Christians. Is so one says, I the, the Christian says the island is going to fall into the ground tomorrow. It's like, a, and he's like, the other guy's like, well, I, okay, I mean, there's, I don't know if that's going to happen. I just have to keep living. Yeah. So the other guy's like, okay, well, let me go over here. I found this hole and it's full of lava and it's boiling up. And he, now he looks at it, it's like, well, that's a hole of boiling lava on an island. I still don't know, mm-hmm. but the guy who thinks it's going to fall in is like, well, but this hole is enough evidence for me to think mm. that it's, you know, going in. And so there's sometimes it's yeah. about how you view the evidence, right? You know, and I see atheists and Christians, especially in debates, arguing over what the evidence is and is it good evidence 
or is it useful or is it bad evidence? And, and is it enough? And is it enough evidence? Yeah. Yes. This is a conversation I see a lot. So, Absolutely. Right. So I think that's a, yeah. it's kind of where you're going and where you're mm-hmm. heading into things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as you've processed all of this, maybe you could talk a little bit. I mean, maybe you got more in the, the paper there, but um, you could talk a little bit about your vision for this conversation. So, yeah, so the next episode, uh, which I guess we'll probably record in a few weeks because next week, next week is Easter. Yeah, so and I'm, it's two weeks. Be, we'll it, probably do that. Sounds good. That should give me enough time to prepare. I've been working on it for about a week. Um, is uh, So the first episode right now is the Book of Saul, the case for agnostic atheism. Uh, Can you, maybe we should start there. Uh, why call it the Book of Saul? Because uh, like, I think people need to know why you're calling it that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I really identify with uh, Paul of the Bible when I was reading it. And I mentioned this in the podcast uh, yes, you did. recently. Uh, was that when I read that he initially he was called Saul of Tarsus. And he was one of the most, one of the more vicious persecutors of Christians up to and, impo- and including killing and torturing them. Now, I've never, as I said in my last podcast, I've never tortured or killed a Christian. That's true. Um, I can attest to that. (laughs) The best of my knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Um, But I certainly, and as I said in the last podcast, like, I was anti-Christian, anti-religious. I wasn't trying to harm a Christian or a religious person. I wasn't even trying to take their faith away from them. I was trying to give them the tools to kill their own faith themselves. Mm. Um, And now I'm giving a podcast showing, encouraging atheists to come to church. And next week, um, this, the show's name switches to the book of Paul because this episode now is called The Case for Agnostic Atheism, where I've done my, my best to give the best case I possibly can, a case every, good as, every bit as strong as I would have made four months ago before I converted. Yeah. And next week, I'm gonna, or next podcast, I'm going to go into The Case for Christ and why I changed my beliefs. And I'm going to be dealing with basically you know, the evidence for Christ. Right. And so, yeah, we just had a bit of an interruption, so don't mind that. But anyhow, so yeah, as we'll I was saying, we'll cut it out. right. Um, next week, my plan is it's called the, the book of Paul, and that's going to be the name of the series going forward. Um, because Paul was the name that Jesus gave, uh, Saul when he converted after Paul met him on his walk to Damascus. Yeah. And that's what, what flipped Saul to go from being an avid persecutor of Christians to being arguably the most avid proponent of it. Right. Um, so in this, in the, in this, in the next episode, I'm going to be giving the case for Christ, the evidence that Christians will give for the reality of Christ, as well as rebuttals to, to counter arguments they've heard. So that's the plan for the next episode. And then going forward, it's time to start you know, getting into like, uh, you know, start being like a mini Jordan Peterson and start analyzing aspects of this religion and how they can be interpreted with real value in a secular sense. Yeah. And so kind of this, if you're a Christian, this is going to be a little different because basically the premise is this. Ron was an atheist. He is now a Christian, but he also, what he found beautiful before he became a Christian as he went to church, his ability to really find truth and goodness. And he's making this argument that you can read the Bible and find great wisdom and still not become a Christian, but come be with Christians and your life will change. Like that's, that's the argument. And, um, and if you find a good community, they're not going to stick you in a headlock and dunk you underwater and make you become a Christian. They're happy to have you be part of them. Um, so and I, I'm excited about that. That's I think the that's the the what do you call it the gist of this process? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's I'm really excited. Yeah. 
Well, well, thank you for laying out these arguments. I think you did a really good job, and I think uh, I think people are going to be like, okay, yeah, he knows his he knows his stuff. He's not trying to just you know stick a bunch of straw men up and <laughs> knock him down tomorrow. So this should be good. Awesome. All Looking right. forward to the next one. Yeah. Thank you, Ron. All right. All right. <laughs>